Today on the integral stage, a university-educated white male will explain how his abstract system technically includes other people and their feelings. Hi, I'm Layman Pascal, and this is the author series where Bruce Alderman and I make available and promote the work of depth-oriented writers in the integral, metamodern, liminal, developmental, transformational, and regenerative spaces. And if you're from a generation raised on sociology, then today you're in for a treat with the author of the new book, Metamodernism or a Cultural Logic of Cultural Logics. This fine fellow is a member of the Archdisciplinary Research Center uh, along with us, and we've heard he's donating the proceeds of this book to that fine organization. I'm an advocate of his work, and I'm hoping my extremely dumb questions will push his mind to the breaking point and set him up for a whole new armada of insights that might become his next book. We're very happy to have him here. It's the recently married Mr. Aaron Elizabeth Smith. Hello. <laughs> Thank you so much. Wow, what a what a welcome. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me on, Layman. I am just realizing now that this book is about metamodernism, M-E-T-A, whereas, and this is probably the result of Google autocorrect, all my questions are about meat modernism, M-E-A-T. So basically all my preparation is useless unless this is somehow about meat production under the conditions of modernity. Could that be the case? I don't think so. I don't think that that was the the aim. Uh, no. Okay. Um Look, this book is absolutely necessary because other than you, there's no strong authorial voice who's reading, understanding, and synthesizing the different metamodernist arguments and taking a stand on the fact that they are complementary and that circulation between them ultimately reveals a common intuition, a common problem, and a common set of philosophical solutions. So what is metamodernism in general, and which major theorists did you feel like were essential to include in this volume? That's an awesome question. That really sets it up very well. So thank you. That and I'm I'm appreciative uh, of that framing too. Because uh, yeah, I think that's sort of exactly the the effort um, that I've been um, kind of laboring at is trying to synthesize these things and trying to also appreciate that there is some kind of deeper structure, deeper thing that they're speaking to. Um, and that is essentially what the book is is accomplishing, I hope, is some kind of a meaningful synthesis of these different approaches, these different strands of the discourse, as I call it. And uh, I th you're right, too. I think that that's, that's what inspired it, because I feel like that's necessary, given that oftentimes metamodernism is spoken about from a given strand or a given perspective or a given um, you know, particular kind of school of thought or thinker. And, uh, and then you don't get the whole, you don't see the whole elephant, you don't see the whole thing there. So that's, that's really what I was trying to do uh, with this book is bring them all together and say what really is happening here. To that end, the specific folks I'm, I'm looking at in particular, I kind of go chronologically, actually, for how it, it unfolded. So um, it starts out with my own kind of broad overview of, of what I see, and we can get into that to serve as kind of the template for when I dig into these different uh, thinkers and their works. Um, and so after that, chapter one, then I dive into aesthetics, which is where uh, metamodernism really showed up in a, in a in a big way after the 2010 article of uh, uh, Tim Vermeulen and Robin Vandenacker. Uh, and so I start actually just before them with some preliminary uses of the term, uh, some not really particularly germane, but I you know, for the sense of, for the sake of being comprehensive, I sort of gesture towards them and kind of give some brief words. But I do spend some time with uh, Alexandra Dumitrescu's uh, formulation of metamodernism, which actually came before uh, Vermeulen and uh, Von Doniker's. Uh, and so 
talk a little bit about that, get into the seminal presentation of uh, metamodernism from those two Dutch cultural theorists uh, with notes on metamodernism, and then kind of work through that kind of lineage in a sense. So folks working in that uh, that sort of domain of things include the folks that are included in their uh, their anthology, which came out in 2017, Metamodernism, Historicity, Depth, and Affect after Postmodernism, I think it's called. Um, and I don't deal with all of the work in that particular volume, but I do draw out some particularly salient ones. So there's uh, Wolfgang Huber, uh, there's Toth, uh, there's Raoul Eshelman, a few others who kind of have chapter essays in the work that I um, bring into this uh, kind of broader argument I'm making. Uh, then I also look at the work of Greg Denver, uh, who is very much in sort of that cultural studies uh, aesthetics domain. And I think that's pretty much what gets covered in that uh, that field. And then I pick up in chapter three with complexity. So that kind of moves into around 2017, you get this new sort of branch uh, approach to talking about metamodernism, which really foregrounds uh, complexity, complexification theories, uh, complex system science, that sort of stuff, uh, and models of hierarchical complexity. So there I start with the work of Hansi Freinacht, who uh, really took metamodernism in a in, in new domains, new directions, and uh, go through uh, what's going on there, talk about the work of Lena Rachel Anderson and Thomas Bjorkman. Then chapter four is about philosophy. So that's uh, pretty much entirely, uh, I think, entirely devoted to uh, Jason and Ananda Josephson Storm's work, who wrote uh, Metamodernism, A Future of Theory uh, in 2021, I think. Um, which is a systematic philosophy. So that's all about uh, his articulation of metamodernism. Um, and then I get into uh, a chapter I call meta narrative, which is about how these ideas get picked up in by various social, well, let's say, yeah, social scientists and natural scientists. So uh, drawing the work on uh, Greg Enriquez, Bobby Azarian, who both make explicit connections with their work to this new paradigm of meta modernism. Uh, and then I sort of wrap it up with a final chapter on you know, seeing this in a very comprehensive way uh, that tries to, you know, uh, but throughout the entire uh, book, I'm really trying to weave these strands together continuously so that it's not just uh, here they all are and then here's how they all go together. I, I really want people to feel like, oh, yeah, that reminds me of this thing from aesthetics, but this is showing up in the philosophy section. So that's just a, a kind of brief overview of some of the voices uh, and the figures in this discourse that I explicitly draw on, try to survey, try to present in terms of like here's kind of a summary, an overview, bird's eye view of like what these folks are up to, um, hopefully so that people can get a sense of how these things do kind of come together in a, in a big picture vision. So there's a lot of these islands of metamodernism where people are taking a stand and often being uh, critical or confrontational with the other metamodernisms. And your work is more broad, more general, more circulatory between them. But the risk there is uh, maybe that it lacks precision and clarity. So where in all of this do you take a stand? What what assertions are you making about metamodernism? Um, that's a great question. I, I guess I'd say you're, it, it is very much framed as an approach of a big, big tent sort of view here. Um, and and largely, I would say one of the principal motivations of the book was to combat that or push back against that kind of um, very insular, you know, siloed approach. Like, oh, there's this metamodernism, and all those other ones are are false and wrong. 
So I guess on the one hand, one thing I am making a stand about is pushing back against this sort of uh, isolation and this sort of, um, you know, siloed approach to the topic. Um, I do think it's a it's a broader conceptual paradigm that is much more kind of rhizomatic that has these different things coming out of it in in the different domains of aesthetics and philosophy and uh, politics and sociology. Um, and so that is a meaningful thing, I guess you could say that in my attempt to be ecumenical or comprehensive, I am making a, a kind of a direct stand against more um, kind of, yeah, like the, this kind of tribalistic approach. So uh, there's that. But I do think um, ultimately the, the first chapter, which is my broad kind of, um, yeah, kind of synthetic account, which I then kind of bring back in the final chapter, those two chapters are sort of my big picture take on it. And in that sense, what I do draw kind of I guess I would say what I assert, what I'm what I'm offering here um, is a way in which these things can be fitted together. Um, and I draw on or I use rather a, a few kind of terms or concepts that I feel like you can see um, in all these different things. And we could go through those if you want. But they include things like um, reflexive abstraction. So a huge kind of argument that I'm trying to make is that there's this deeper structural pattern that we can see unfolding in this uh, kind of cultural evolutionary uh, development. And that is one that proceeds by means of sort of like uh, recursive reflection on what came before. So there's this building that's happening um, as as things become uh, reflected upon and then responded to. And we can speak about that. But that's a, a kind of chief framing uh, idea for me. Um, and so I, I use that uh, I talk about infinitesimal progress, epistemic bootstrapping. I, um, I talk about decentration, toggling. So I throw out some terms, and again, we can get into these if you want. But um, this, these these offer sort of my view for how then, once you have these terms, you can kind of see how this all plugs in together. Yeah, I think that that would be. There, there's a million things that that makes me think about and want to go sure, in a sure, different sure. Di different directions. But yeah, no, that's a great summary, and I'm I'm sure your view will come up in response to all the questions that we're putting yeah. forward here. So uh, some, but not all of the philosophers you're dealing with are developmentalists. And there's some mm. controversy over the idea of developmental stages in general, both in terms of whether it applies as a valid explanatory tool, but also in terms of whether it's good pragmatic PR for a metamodern ethos that's trying to attract sensitive souls growing beyond postmodernism. Should we be cautious about foregrounding developmental models, or is that hesitation merely the result of people being, uh, in, in your words, pussies and cowards? <laughs> yes, well, thank you for that uh, very direct quote. Um, I think that's right on the cover, actually. No, uh, so, this, yeah, the, I, I guess what I'd say to that is... Um, I think languaging here is really important. I think there are ways of capturing the essence of some of these really important ideas without using uh, some terms that, um, one, can be misleading, two, might have baggage and history that don't necessarily need to be brought along, um, three, suggest certain kinds of commitments that aren't necessarily necessary uh, to, 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 to use if you want to think in these terms. So, for example, right, like, the word development, I've actually found that in my own, uh, you know, I don't know, terminological repertoire, I'm not using that one as much. There's a lot of suggestion there about, uh, you know, it it links into um, a lot of, well, psychology in particular. Um, it links into uh, stage models and these sorts of things, which I think wind up becoming kind of grist for unnecessary combat 
where you can frame very similar ideas using slightly different language uh, in a way that actually be more, um, I think, amenable uh, to to people, more comfortable. Uh, so, for example, um, you know, like what would what would be some examples of that? Like, um, I do frame this as I use the language of of recursive self reflection. Okay, so what you have there is a process of uh, there's this thing, but then you can kind of objectify that thing. You can take it as an object of awareness. You can, um, then reflect upon it, think about it. You can critique it and then you can transcend it and kind of like move beyond, see the limitations of it and see what else is going on. And then you are kind of operating from a new center, but then this process can iteratively continue. You decenter further. So you, you keep objectifying, critiquing, reflecting, et cetera, and transcending. And I think that's actually a pretty neutral way to talk about like cultural change. Postmodernists were objectifying, critiquing, reflecting uh, upon modernism. Uh, the modernists were doing the same with what came before them, and metamodernists are doing that now with postmodernism. So that's just sort of like what cultural um, production and, and development, it's just what we do as, as time progresses and we have more to, before us so we can work with to think about and interpret and then see what is missing. Now, one thing I do take a stand on is I I I do side with those who see this as like a, a progressive gesture. It's a progressive move. I I'm, I think that this is a really an important, maybe even an essential component to metamodern perspectives that do differentiate it from uh, just more kind of postmodern relativistic ones. And so, if you can see this progressive recursive reflection as being something that's sort of taking us to new places. I think that that's that's just the core insight there. Now you can talk about that phenomenon as development, cultural, psychological. You can also just talk about it in terms of you know political progression and self-reflection. But one of the interesting things about these different articulations of metamodernism is that they're they're all aware of this in some interesting way, and they all deal with it. I mean, so arguably one of the strands of the discourse that's the least developmentally focused is the aesthetic kind of cultural studies strand. Um, but if you read, you know, both the work of Vermeulen and von Doniker, as well as a lot of the essays in their anthology, um, a lot of it is about a return of history, re reclaiming notions of progress that aren't simple linear, you know, notions of progress, kind of post-Hegelian notions of progress, this notion of the relativity of progress, that things are as long as you can see that something is better uh, then you know, that we can still be moving ahead, even if there's no absolute. Um, so this is uh, one of the reasons actually that I use this term. Um, I call it infinitesimal progress um, as, as being particular, like a, a, one of these key ideas that I see is characteristic of this metamodern turn. And I was just trying to capture something like what you can call development there, um, but that you can use this idea in other contexts where it sort of fulfills both functions. I think that most of the time, the reticence to adopt like developmental framings, either of culture or other things, is this reaction to uh, the sort of totalizing absolutistic notions of development and progress, capital P, that the modernists were up to. And so one of the key kind of emphases of postmodernism, arguably, was this rejection that, well, there isn't an absolute you know, state, there isn't an absolute telos or an absolute knowledge, you know, Hegel and Marx and this whole notion of like, we're all going to reach this, you know, utopian zenith of some kind, and it's this absolute thing, uh, that largely gets rejected. And I think what's important to emphasize is that metamodernism, at least as I'm articulating it as its kind of synthetic form, 
I think it also rejects that too, but it doesn't do what the postmodernists do either, which is then issue any notion of progress. So what I, I refer to is this thing called in infinitesimal progress, which is, you know, um, or I also call it Zenonian progress, where Zeno's paradox was, you know, well, if I need to get to the you know edge of the room, how is that possible? If If I take one step, I could divide that step in half. And then I could divide that half of step into a half of the step and so on and so forth. So iteratively, recursively, uh, there's just this winds up being this infinite amount of space that I would need to transverse in order to get to this other side of the room. And isn't that impossible? Isn't that a paradox? And so I kind of take that framing and, and, and apply it to progress, which is that we can make these infinitesimal moves forward. But when you're existing in an infinite process of eternally recursive self-reflection, then you're not going to end up in some absolutistic Hegelian, you know, uh, ultimate. You're you're going to be making one step, one small step. And, and I could say more about that, but I feel like when you frame it that way, that's much more amenable to postmodern thinkers who are very skeptical of capital P progress, who would say like, okay, maybe I could accept some notion of infinitesimal progress. Um, but at the same time, you're still acknowledging that there's something like progress at work. And uh, I think that that's a lot of the sorts of gestures that are underway in this meta-modern engagement with like postmodern and modern ideas. So Again, it's going to be so hard to try to summarize these things because I don't know if, if that made sense to people listening. I mean, I, it's not. Um, hopefully, it's very clear. I, I tried to write this book in a very, very accessible way. Um, I, I've, I've, for the few people who have read it so far, I think they've been like, "Wow, I, this is very accessible." So I might lapse into my very academic, uh, you know, um, over jargony filled uh, terminology here, but I'll, I, I can try to explain these things. Uh, without that too so anyway well i think the uh the one and a half people who are familiar with my metaphysics of adjacency will <laughs> all be behind infinitesimal progress now you mentioned the uh the less developmental take that's present in the aesthetic and cultural studies strand so let's dive into that because the chapter on art i found to be simultaneously uh one of the most compelling and most frustrating pieces of the book hmm. i love the exploration there's nothing i actually disagreed but with, but uh, I find something troubling in philosophical explorations of art and aesthetics in general because they mm -hmm. tend to focus on material that is explicitly similar to the cognitive patterns that they see in other forms of sense making. Uh, I used to make this complaint in the integral community that my drawing of the Buddha is less spiritual than Van Gogh's drawing of a potato because <laughs> the level of complexity is not located in the type of content, but in the mm. intricacies of the style. So mm. I'm curious how you relate to this, because it's much harder to track Picasso's movement into and beyond his blue period than it is to track Bo Burnham's overtly recursive self-reflection, because that's so similar to cognitive and social structures. Are we at risk of looking at art too much as something that explicitly comments on reality and not enough as something that evolves through sets of compulsive stylistic concerns. Oh man, this is great. Uh, this is good. Uh, <laughs> this is why I love, love this podcast. Um, great questions. Uh, so this is such an interesting issue. Um, and I think you're right to like name that, that issue, right? It's very easy maybe too easy to identify particular conceptual analogs, right, in, in aesthetics and then say, hey, look, therefore he's dealing with, you know, reflexive abstraction, therefore this must be metamodern and all this stuff. And what about if, you know, like what is a metamodern depiction of, of a potato look like, you know? So uh, 
you know, what would I say to that? I, I guess I would say I do think that there is a certain tenuousness that I've always felt when people really just try to apply like developmental thinking to aesthetics. And I've always had this this problem here with um, with talking about metamodernism as a developmental stage for that reason. I, I, I don't think that uh, like purely aesthetic gestures are as amenable to developmental assessment as other things. Now, that being said, there are different avenues you could go with this, right? So you can look at, you can apply something like the model of hierarchical complexity, which is important for developmental strands of metamodern thinking, to uh, the artistic register, right? You could, you, what you'd have to do though is basically then uh, actually identify the ways in which abstractions are being uh, metasystematically linked together to generate sort of principled level engagement. So you could actually be like, okay, this is at that level or something. I don't know if that is like, I don't know if that's the most uh, productive way of thinking about what is really going on with metamodernism uh, because the way that I'm looking at it more, which I think is more amenable to aesthetic production analysis is thinking in terms uh, of of the content, which I think is what you're what you're grappling with, right? And so I feel like what's going on here is if we're not seeing production that is grappling with issues that are raised by postmodern, you know, the sensibility and the and the kind of cultural zeitgeist and the cultural logic, um, then trying to label that particular aesthetic product as metamodern becomes difficult because the whole idea in a recursive sense would be that somehow there's some kind of representation of certain postmodern ideas occurring at this metamodern level, but, you know, going further and, and carrying them in a different direction. Now, um, this would be, I would say, like a great topic if we had two hours to dive into and, and we had a number of people who wanted to dialectically go back and forth to really dig into this. Um, and that would be fascinating. But I feel like we could spend hours on this topic alone. And if I try to opine on this, it might not be satisfactory to anyone. So I'll just name those difficulties, I guess, at the outset of trying to uh, use purely developmental logic in looking at cultural artifacts. And I and I, and I also name uh, attached with that my own uh, dis-ease and, and, and observed dis-ease of others in having to make that kind of uh, connection. Um, whereas again, if we approach this in the other way I was talking about in terms of like recursive reflection, I think that there's, you can bring in that developmental dialectical logic, uh, but you can, you can do it in a much more uh, sort of, uh, I don't know, a way that's a lot more apropos to these sorts of categories. Um, but I'd love to explore that further because I guess I would like to hear then someone try to make the case of absent particular conceptual categories. How could we identify something as, say, metamodern? Um, now, let me give one um, amendation to that, let's say. So you can have styles that aren't necessarily conceptual in nature, but are evocative of, you know, let's say, for example, I draw a big painting 
and I've got something over here that looks like a, you know, a, a medieval manuscript. And then I've got something over here. In fact, I did this in my book, Emergentism, uh, something over here that looks like a kind of modernist depiction of something, something over here that looks like, you know, a kind of quintessentially postmodern collage or fractured image or something, right? Now, just by putting all those things together in some way, there'd have to be some kind of logic in which they related e each other. Otherwise, it is just sort of postmodern, you know, uh, bricolage or, or whatever. If there, if that was going on, then you could say uh, that that might be a metamodern sort of approach, even though someone might have no idea about the concepts involved with these sorts of things. They're just trying to engage different sort of stylistic registers. Do you see what I mean? Like something like that might be the an example. But anyway, I'll leave it there. Other than just to say, I'd love to to hear what someone might suggest, and maybe you have ideas of like how we could do that sort of analysis uh, from purely stylistic uh, aesthetic uh you know yeah um, you're right that it's a very difficult topic i've got a number of uh query points they're right on the leading edge of what can be thought about this stuff and maybe next autumn's metamodern spirituality lab is devoted to art and we could get mm. a bunch of good discussions going around that awesome uh for now um i want to zero in on on something about denver um because he comes up in the art and culture section and the way you present him as sort of trying to re-secure and advocate for the role of inner life as it emerges in people who have been able to connect subjectively with values and views and feelings from different phases of culture. And I like that, and let's just pretend that's everything that he stands for. But coming out of the integral bias, I'm inclined to argue that all four quadrants, subjective, mutual, objective, and systemic, have to be secured. And so the Denver is necessary, but not sufficient in that sense. If we're leaving out that inner experience, we don't really have a stable, flourishing metamodernism. But likewise, if we revalorize and secure inner experience and we don't have the appropriate social and systemic infrastructure to benefit each other and build a metamodern culture, then we don't really have it either. What's your take on that? I guess what I'd say is uh, I'm inclined to agree something along those lines. I think that his formulation isn't quite sufficient to capture all that we see uh, in sort of a metamodern register. Um, so I think it's a good start, but, you know, he basically says that, you know, the metamodern is that which sort of, yeah, secures and protects the interiority and the felt lived experience of people, you know, in, in the face of say modernist dehumanization and objectification and in the face of sort of like postmodern, you know, radical, uh, uh, sub, uh, kind of relativism and nihilism or something. And I think that like descriptively, you could be like, yeah, that's going on. But I don't think that that's necessarily the best explanatory framework for it. Um, and uh, so I, I now then it's like, I think that if you wanted to try to bring in like a four quadrants approach, that does bring in more more of what's going on because then you could ask well why is this happening what are what are sort of the would that be the lower right uh you know quadrant level kind of uh intersystems uh phenomena that are going on um you know and and what's going on in this lower left in in the sense of like a a worldview shift that's actually precipitating these sorts of things so like in my last chapter i do talk about metamodernism as a worldview and that's important because it's not just sort of like a uh, stylistic gesture or like a kind of inclination to depict things in certain ways. Yeah, these are linked to deeper structures. So um, I think that that is one element that I think is missing in Denver's approach is that it, he is still treating it much uh, as a phase, as like an, uh, an aesthetic phase that has certain kinds of stylistic sort of um, 
you know, approaches, uh, but that the zeitgeist presumably can change and then things uh, shift again. And that's also kind of not in consonance with other ways that he himself frames it as an episteme. You know, he he and uh, Linda Ciriella both talk about metamodernism as an episteme drawing on Foucault's idea. But then you're really dealing with structure. You know, you're really dealing with structures of knowledge and what is made possible within a structure of knowledge and all that. And I have never really seen that fleshed out uh, very completely because, you know, like, Where's the archaeology going on there that would render metamodernism a genuine episteme? What are the structural components to it? If if you're just talking about it as an aesthetic strategy, you're kind of missing all that. So that would be, you know, uh, uh, a, a a gentleman's critique of of Denver's uh, approach. But um, I do think he offers some other um, additions to supplementations of the uh, cultural studies view that I think is actually helpful. And I try to name those as well in the book. Um, whereas other things as 11 methods, I think actually can be simplified into a more kind of parsimonious account for these things. So yeah. Um, and that, that kind of critique, I think extends to a lot of the um, kind of cultural studies uh, angle on this. I think that there's, there's a lot missing um, from their account. And so for example, Vermeulen and von Doniker talk about it, uh, metamodernism as a particular stage in the development of capitalism. So they are kind of engaging it from sort of a, a Marxist angle of there's kind of an economic, you know, uh, a ground and a superstructure sort of thing, a very kind of Frederick Jameson, uh, David Harvey approach. And, you know, there's just a million reasons why those kinds of accounts aren't fully kind of suitable, nor do they even in their own work really get into the economic forces the way, say, like a David Harvey does in his, where like half the book is economic charts tracking Fordism and, you know, versions of consumption and all this stuff. So it seems like a little bit of a kind of a gesture towards like, yes, and by the way, our, the deep structure here is something economic, but we're not really going to talk much about that. So uh, one thing I do try to do a little bit, and I think others also in other strands of the discourse is try to identify these deeper patterns, the deeper structures. And so a big thing in the book is like, well, just if we map all these together, if we put all these out, there's philosophy, there's the sciences, there's this worldview stuff, there's, you know, there's a lot going on that it becomes very difficult to just sort of reduce that to, oh, this is a kind of phase in, you know, uh, 21st century uh, art or something like that. Um, there's there's a lot more going on. So, yeah. Wouldn't it be amazing if I had just started checking my phone while you were saying all that? <laughs> I saw Jordan Peterson checking his phone while he was talking to Robert Sapolsky. I watched it this morning and I'm just uh -huh. like, oh, I've got to start doing that. Like just, just to throw the person I'm talking to off a little bit. Yeah. Just ask a Next question time. and then, and then just like start playing a game. <laughs> and then like when they've stopped speaking long enough that you notice, just look up again and like read another question. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's coming folks. If you're a regular watcher. <clears throat> There's something that I see in a lot of metamodern entertainment, and I think Everything Everywhere All at Once does this really well, which is if you're alert for it, it shows you something like the structure of meaninglessness mm. and then reveals that that can also be the structure of the production of meaning. Mm. And so my question is, how can the structure of meaninglessness possibly be the structure of the production of meaning? And what kind of attitude or angle of approach is necessary to reveal a cornucopia instead of a void? Mm. Yeah. So um, that is also one of the, I think, I hope this shines through. That is kind of a key idea in, in the, in the book that I try to get across. Um, I mean, the way that I would say it is um, it's precisely in that breakdown of absolutes, right? You have, if you, if you want to take uh, some notion of meaning, uh, which 
um, I can speak to my own personal experience or or we could even look at the cultural level. But early, let's say, notions, and I would go so far as to say maybe less reflective, maybe even from a developmental philosophical or a psychological angle, you could say more immature perspectives, but that languaging might be difficult for some. But I think in a less reflective way, you can talk about forms of meaning that people take on as um, being a very kind of... Uh, let's say, mispla uh, misplaced concreteness. They have certain ideas. That, oh, there's this thing and it's my meaning. And and like, let's say it's it's God. God wants me to do this or I must believe X, Y, and Z. And if I do that, I will go to heaven or whatever. And um, it tends to be very, uh, very uh, absolutistic, very ultimate uh, in its framing, right? Which is sort of like, yes, it's, you know, just you do the thing and et cetera, et cetera. And there's a lot that could be said about that. I mean, I come from a fundamentalist background, so I can opine on at, at great length about this approach to meaning. And there's something comforting about that. And it doesn't really tax you too much intellectually to have to like grapple with a lot of incongruities and inconsistencies and contradictions and paradoxes. It's uh, nice and tidy. Um, and versions of this form of meaning even persist into into modernity after kind of traditional religion gets its modern critique, because you find these ideas of, oh, well, now the meaning is progress. Now the meaning is, you know, the absolute knowledge of Hegel or the, the classless society of Marx or any number of these meta narrative stances that promise some kind of ultimate or absolute that we are linearly heading towards. And again, it's a it's a kind of misplaced concreteness. There's a sense of there's this thing and we're like on the way and this is this is meaningful. Now, when you critique that, then and, and in the process show that these are social constructs, that they're deeply embedded in history, that they're uh, process phenomena, that they're not, you know, just things in the world. There isn't like a, you know, even even notions of meaning myself or itself. I'm, I'm writing a book right now called The Evolution of Meaning. And this is really core to it, right? Which is that meaning is not a thing in the world. Uh, and, and this can be very disturbing when you realize this, you know, if you're more traditionalist, you can say, oh, God made the world and he did it with intention. And there things have objective meaning and there's objective value. There's fundamental values. There's something ingrained in the nature of, of the essence of, the, of things that renders them meaningful and, and valuable. And then uh, when you when you start getting into sort of modernist framings of things, you that that collapses. You you look out into the world, you don't see meaning. You see just stuff, and you see objects, and you see behavior and whatnot. And then you come to think, well, I guess then my meaning is subjective. So at least then you can hold on to this sort of notion that like, oh, this heroic, uh, you know, existentialist thing, at least maybe, which is right on the edge of absurdism, you know, which is like I can I can make meaning and it's all subjective. So. These things erode, they collapse, but in the process, what you can do then is appreciate their deep processual relational nature. Now, the problem with postmodernism is it gets stuck there. It, it sees the systemic structural nature of things. It sees the processual even in the relational nature of things, but it views all this through the lens of relativism. It's basically like, well, if it's the case that you know, this meaning is basically uh, historically contingent. If it's not an absolute, et cetera, et cetera, then it's basically under the sign of the negative. It's 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 like a, a negation of meaning because, and here's the thing, it's still using the, the notions of meaning and value that come from modernity and maybe even pre-modernity as sort of their standard. And then it sort of negates them. And it's like, ah, oh, yes, we've lost meaning and now we are alone in the cosmos and all this stuff. And so- the thing I guess that I'm arguing goes on in this metamodern context that goes the next stage is that 
if you acknowledge the processual, relational, structural, systemically um, kind of contextual nature of things like meaning and value, you can begin to see that these are like that there's a, a kind of there's something almost objective in their relativity. Uh, and I think that that is that next move that gets you that next stage. So, um, I mean, I actually do find something like a model of hierarchical complexity to be helpful to think about something like this, um, because one of the things that you see there is uh, if you can frame knowledge as a system, which is like what Foucault did with an episteme, then if you can only see the system, then you just say, oh, well, there's systems of knowledge. And so it's all relative. You know, there's one system, there's another system. You know, if you only see system, that's it. And it's rel relativity. But if you can get one level higher than that and actually start to compare systems and see the patterns that hold across systems, then you can maintain that they are systems. They're historically contingent. They're all these things. But there is also a logic to them, that there is a logic to how systems of knowledge themselves unfold. And when you can see that, then something like meaning, even purpose, teleology return because there's this higher level way that even these forms of knowledge construction can be fit together and uh, have a kind of pattern to them. So I would argue that the postmodernists were vital for breaking the notions of absolutistic, misplaced, concrete notions of value and meaning. We had to do that. We had to deconstruct them to see that they, they don't work that way. But we keep going because then we can say, oh, OK, well, then, you know, what really are the patterns of, of systemic knowledge formation that go deeper? And people like, you know, Habermas were already starting to do these sorts of moves. Um, but people like Foucault and Kuhn, you know, arguably were, were stuck in this sort of relativization. And um, and so the metamodern shift beyond the postmodern is able to see the patterns that hold across systems um, across contingent systems and reframe things like meaning not as objective in the world or as like purely subjective as modernist or even postmodernist thought, but as transjective. So you get this new level of kind of second order uh, reality to these things that were uh, earlier seen as purely relative. I hope that makes sense to people. I can, I mean, again, these are things I could talk about at length, but the book does, I think, present that different forms of the metamodern critique um, of the postmodern express this in various ways. Uh, I think Storm's work does the best in really um, laying the philosophical groundwork for this and really thinking about it as this dialectical move of taking the postmodern deconstruction further where you get a reconstructive move. But you see this language showing up in the, in the arts as well. You know, reconstruction is really the kind of key, it's a recurring hallmark of metamodernism of you got to do the deconstruction, but when you do that, then you can reconstruct things from that higher level perspective. Um, and I think these sorts of notions pervade metamodern framings of things. Yeah, the uh, the metaphor of a higher level of perspective is uh, attractive and off-putting, uh, and I think equal amounts. Uh, but there certainly seems to be an incongruity that can become apparent to us at the heart of the postmodern. Right? It starts to seem really ridiculous to say that there's no such thing as photographs because cameras have lenses on them. Or, mm. you know, fundamentally, this was the integral critique that it's there's a performative incongruity there, right? That you can't say 
everything is relative and that egalitarianism is a superior moral position without saying you have a higher perspective and a superior moral position. So there's a failure to take their own position seriously. And if they do take it seriously, it implies that they are near the leading edge of a progressive movement, except that that progressive movement has to move further in the direction of mm -hmm. relativity and decentralization of value and perspective. Yeah. Uh, so that's my general take. But one thing I wanted to bring up here is, I mean, this book explores art and philosophy and religion, and you mentioned economic and material infrastructures a few minutes ago, but it doesn't have a lot to say about normative metamodern politics, which is where mm. people like Brent Cooper and others are focused. What does metamodern thinking tell me about what I should tell other people that I think about Israel and Palestine or Russia and Ukraine or the American elections? Is, in your view, is there a metamodern politique? Hmm. Um, yeah, and part of that absence of the political was intentional for this book. Um, I mean, the Hanzi works are explicitly framed as metamodern politics, and I think that hopefully so someone will come around and, and add some plurality to what our conception of metamodern politics is, um, mm -hmm. because while I appreciate uh, very much you know that series, um, I do think that there's a whole... Uh, manner of ways in which uh, metamodern views can manifest politically um, and they don't have to be built off of certain kinds of presuppositions. So I'd like to see more, um, more metamodern political thought emerge. Uh, and that's not a critique of the Hanzi stuff. It's just that, you know, when you've only got a sample of one uh, that can overrepresent, be thought to overrepresent, you know, what that is. So that's a little bit of a, avoidance of the question because you're asking me my thoughts i guess um i guess i would say i i would i do see i see as essential to anything metamodern a moving beyond the postmodern by means of the postmodern so if we use that as sort of like a just a little heuristic i would say you know what forms uh, of politics could we envision that do something like that now one of the things that becomes complicated here is these terms themselves become a bit loose. And so if I were to even ask someone, what is postmodern politics, right? Um, you'd get a lot of answers and they might not all be entirely coherent with each other. I think there might be certain patterns that that would be justifiably like, okay, we can work with that. Whatever you want to call it, uh, the, the emphasis of identity or identitarian or uh, identity politics, so some see that as pejorative, but let's just use that, I think is, is an aspect. Uh, and let's say, let's just use that maybe as an example, right? Um, is that the, the recognition that there are different communities of people who are drawing on, uh, sort of local, uh, sense-making customs and, uh, all, and, and incredibly meaningful, um, sort of social activities that aren't universal, that don't transfer into other contexts, right? Um, and that we need to take that seriously. I think a lot of the impasse of a lot of postmodern uh, politics, let's just call it that, is that that really creates a huge problem because like, how can we talk to each other if we can't talk to each other? If I presume that you can't understand me because you have a different experience, how are we going to do politics, the working together of different people, right? Um, 
So I think that there's a meaningful uh, point, an argument that, that could be made that uh, a lot of the polarization and the kind of factionalization, the fragmentation of our political landscape, at least in the U.S., uh, is the result of this increasing postmodern language. Um, and for the record, I still see um, a lot of what's going on right now uh, in terms of the spread and the, and the uh, proliferation of postmodern thought is actually happening on the right. Um, so I think if you were to analyze the rise of, you know, the far right and the alt right and, uh, and Trump, a lot of that is the sort of post-truth thing and alternative facts thing and who's to say who's right thing that was pioneered by uh, leftist postmodernists uh, earlier on, uh, originally with the hope of it being sort of emancipatory. And then that totally turned out to actually be not the case if it if it well and then you can argue was it even emancipatory in that context but certainly in the hands of someone like a trump it becomes something very different and um i think that a lot of people are sort of acknowledging that uh, I, I think i was just listening to i think it was npr it was one of these mainstream news channels uh and but you know more kind of what people would tend to associate with the liberal media or something and they were saying uh the importance of journalism for finding truth they were going on and on about how valuable it is now the truth, you know, and it's just like, it's shocking to me. It's like the, the, the lack of sort of historical awareness of like, you go back 40 years and these same people would have been saying, yes, but who's truth and what is truth and is there truth and all this stuff. But now that you see the postmodern language rising on the right, now the left is finding the importance of truth. So what I'm getting at with all this, I suppose, is that I think that a uh, cutting edge sort of meta modern politics is going to be that which is able to surpass the kind of identitarian isolationism and be able to simultaneously acknowledge difference and uh the the <laughs> here the language becomes difficult the necessity of the possibility of the urgency for connection integration working together that sort of a thing and so I think that uh, it needs to be acknowledged, though, first, right, that we're not working with these simple absolutes anymore. It's not like uh, and this is the, the problem everywhere right now is that in the face of the proliferation of postmodern relativism, there is a lot of reactionary sentiment of we can go back to these simpler absolutes of like, oh, yes, but capital T truth. It's like, well, wait a second. I thought we couldn't do that anymore for all the reasons that you've laid out. So any metamodern politics, I think, needs to move us to the other side of that impasse. And I think you're going to see that when you find people who are able to speak across differences, speak across communities and identities with mutual respect, uh, while acknowledging that there will be certain things that can never be fully communicated, but that we can have meaningful connections and coalitions of people to make collective action happen at scale. That'd be one approach. And I could go on about notions of bringing in systems thinking and, you know, infrastructural change and climate change and, you know, initiatives and all that. But that would be kind of a, a very broad approach of like what a meta modern politics could look like. And that, and I think that that is sort of, Enough, it, you don't have to commit yourself to too much specific content there, right? Because people could try to do that uh, from a more kind of pro big government perspective, as well as from a more kind of, uh, you know, more individual freedoms perspective. So this could be across right and left, et cetera. But I don't know, it'd be the first stab at that question. Yeah, there's uh, as much as there is room to delve into the leading edge of metamodern art, I think the metamodern presence of a left and a right deserves a lot of consideration that people haven't been exploring yet. But I really appreciated your 
um, highlighting the problem of our inability to talk to each other within an identitarian postmodern politics. And it makes me think of the general problem of communication across relative contexts, which leads me to think of Einstein, who's one of my intellectual touchstones. Because it's conventional to say that he gave us relativity theory, but the fact that physical measurements depend on location and the velocity of the observer has been known since Galileo. Einstein didn't introduce relativity, but came up with a way to solve for it without getting rid of it by using a limit condition, which is in this case, the speed of light or the speed of gravity. And if this limit condition binds every perspective, it can be used to translate information between perspectives and almost becomes mm -hmm. like a blockchain whereby they can check each other. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone in a relative frame can agree on how <laughs> relativity changes the data. And because they do that, they can, uh, make intelligible reality across their differences. And I bring that up because I think physics often provides the elaborate cognitive architectures that are later deployed in philosophical and cultural solutions. But the real question here, Mr. Dempsey, is Albert Einstein, metamodern or not? Pre-modern, really. I just can't, uh, no. Um, He's a no, savage. I think, <laughs> I, I would say, actually, I would say that um, that that's a great framing, and 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 what I'm about to say is probably going to be very familiar to folks listening here. Uh, it's not a particularly novel insight, but I think it's crucial to what we're talking about. Um, I talk about decentration in the book, which is a developmental concept in in you know developmental psychology. Piaget talked about it, the ability to, and Robert Keegan famously talks about it, the ability to increasingly um, decenter from what you're taking as your subjective lens to reflect on that. And then you can get that as your object of awareness. And then again, so this is this, I use this as talking about culture, what we do with culture, because that's the same process. We are decentering from our particular lens and then able to do that in an iterative recursive way. So you get eternal recursion, you get iterative uh, self-transcendence through uh, recursive self-reflection. Now that is one, an emphasis of the relativity of things, because you see that there is no absolute perspective. There's no God's eye perspective because it, it's a it's a process and it keeps going. But to the way that you're talking about to make this analogy with uh, relativity physics, there is an absolute built into that, which is we can actually assess how decentered something is relative to something else. So uh, that I do think provides us something like this, you know, this uh, I don't know, philosopher's stone, the, the the holy grail, the the yardstick, whatever, the sort of universal metric for um, for thinking about these sorts of things. And what you were saying about the postmodernists earlier is the same thing: is that um, what their actual value hierarchy is is decentration, maximal decentration, right? Because they'll look at someone who you know is a just a backwards racist and they'll say look how narrow-minded and closed-minded this person is look how you know this is this is bad and look how homophobic this person is and right they identify all the ways that people are not decentered from their perspective to be able to reflect on it at a higher level and they're just working with cultural biases and these very kind of uh, parochial mindsets and so the presumption in all of this is that you can get out of those limited parochial limited mindsets to something higher to see, oh, hey, we can reflect on racism, we can reflect on homophobia. And when we do that, we actually allow ourselves the conditions to change things, to be aware of it, to mitigate its factors, etc. So all of this is presumed in a postmodern lens. What they don't then acknowledge is that uh, they are operating from that given lens that allows them to see this. So what the metamodern move does is it 
it decenters from the postmodern move and it's able to look on what the postmodernists were doing and then say, hey, look, yes, you're doing it. You're emphasizing the value hierarchy of maximal decentration. And so that is like a, a very wonderful uh, universal metric or yardstick for assessing these sorts of things. Um, and I think that that's sort of the key idea that gets brought in here. That is uh, what is a, what allows us to contextualize context, as I say, and to relativize rel relativism, because we're putting these things then in relation and we see the broader pattern. And when we do that, we have something meta stable to work with, to be able to adjudicate between these different levels of perspective. Um, and so then the litmus test becomes how many other perspectives can I inhabit? How many other perspectives can I take on? Can I see through? How much can I reflect on my own perspective? Um, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and so I think that there's a lot of, that can be done there, uh, including in a political register of thinking about, do we want people uh, in charge and making decisions and laws who are really only to, able to see their own maybe kind of Christian you know, worldview and they don't really get or have the capacity to deal with you know, different worldviews? Uh, at the same time, do we want people who just say, oh, yes, there's just infinite worldviews and, and so there is no values here or whatever? Uh, or do we want something where we can hold hold these worldviews in a meaningful relationship with each other? Um, that That's, I think, uh, what it's about. Kind of, this is hard of language here. I've got a concern around um, if there isn't an endless amount of computational space in us to hold these increasing perspectives, are we at risk of losing the sophistication of each perspective as we increase the number of perspectives held by the same cognitive space? And maybe I want to say this more ridiculously. Um, okay, we've had carrots for a long time, and then we figured out how to make bagels. But I'm not sure a half carrot, half bagel is a leap forward. It could be worse than both. Right. So if we assume there's something like a new kind of affect available to metamodern consciousness that consists of simultaneously experiencing the relative social construction of meaning and also enjoying the validity of perception and feelings naively, how mm. do we know that hybridization is an improvement and not just a half carrot, half bagel that's worse than either having a carrot or a bagel? Yeah. And this is good. So um, there's some interesting stuff that could be explored here that uh, I do think like folks like uh, Greg Denver and some of the cultural studies folks can actually be uh, of use here, right? Because they are the the strand uh, of metamodern discourse that most emphasizes, let's say, the negative aspects of metamodernism as they perceive it. Um, and while some of those, I think, negative emphases are actually based on what I would say are mischaracterizations, like they would say that Trump, like I, I was talking with Ramoyland and he says, oh, Trump is a classic example of like this metamodern shift. Um, and I don't think that's right for the reasons I talked about in terms of the use of postmodernism in that whole political discourse. Um, but still, uh, you can make the case that uh, even the things that we could agree on, like increasing self-reflection, uh, don't necessarily make things better. Um, and so there's there's a, a danger in, in naive and simplistic notions of, you know, uh, growth to goodness and just simple notions of complexity equals things getting uh, progressively better, etc. So I think that we should acknowledge that, name it. I do also see this related uh, movement in in metamodern uh, phenomena, which is, it's not just that things can become increasingly reflective. It's also that reflection is able to reflect on itself to the point where it can decide to stop reflecting. 
Um, so it's kind of like the meditator, right? You've got a busy mind, busy mind. And it's not just saying, hey, thought is great, right? So a bunch of thoughts is really great. And a million thoughts all at once is great. Actually, it's like when you can stand back from your own thoughts and have thoughts about your thoughts and do a metacognitive move and say, hey, my brain is really loud right now. And then it's like, what if I just, you know, and then there's something productive there. And, uh, you know, so I, there are interesting folks talking about this dynamic. I think Tom Murray, Benita Roy and others in the kind of more integral scene talk about the importance of simplicity. And I think, um, I think there's an element that, that ties in with aspects that what they're getting at here, which is that sometimes st stopping complexity, stopping uh, over reflection is, is what's called for. So I think that you can understand a lot of the return to uh, a kind of pretense of innocence, which is actually a phrase I just came up with right now, but I really like, cause it's sort of a ironic sincerity, kind of a, a gesture, a, a naive uh, informed naivete, but uh, the pretense of innocence is like what you see in Moonrise Kingdom and these Wes Anderson movies and, and a lot of this, which is sort of like, yeah, we know we can be reflective, but we are also knowingly not going to do that. And we can reclaim a sense of just the pure and the simple and the innocent. And so a lot of metamodern aesthetics, I think, shows up with some of that. Uh, but, and here's the key thing, that's a product of reflection. It's not pre-reflective in the same way that like a still mind is not, you know, uh, well, let's put it this way. A still mind is the product of intentional metacognition through meditation, right? Uh, it doesn't just happen because, you know, in a in a kind of, uh, yeah. So you, you, you need to go through thought and overthinking to the point where you can then uh, kind of find that still that stillness on the other side. Um, and I think that that can help account for some of those like, yeah, we don't need carrot bagels necessarily. If we're doing that sort of thing at certain points, then like, it's knowing when to apply the complexity, knowing when to apply the the reflection that I think is is important. And that's the notion of toggling too. Um, yeah. Now there's there's a phrase you used a couple of times in the book that I think might be adjacent to this material. Um, how to put this. I don't watch a lot of sports, but I'm aware there's something called figure skating. And in this something called figure skating, they do a thing called a triple let's. And along those lines, what the hell is a triple hermeneutic and how many points <laughs> do you get for it? Um, it depends on how well it's performed. Uh, uh, I would. OK, so a triple hermeneutic uh, is based on this idea of the double hermeneutic. Um, and the, the idea of the double hermeneutic comes out of um, sociology or reflexive sociology, which is and, and thanks for bringing this up. This is actually really important. And um, we can come back to this at the end. But uh I'm also meta aware of the use of co coming up with like neologisms and little coined phrases and terms for the purposes of writing a book like this. And so maybe that might be an interesting thing to come to, but yes, I talk about the triple her hermeneutic as being the awareness of the double hermeneutic and reflecting on that. And the double hermeneutic is this notion that um, like in sociology, sociologists put things into culture. They, they write sociology books and they come up with ideas like social constructionism, for example, um, but in like the 80s or so, uh, a number of scholars were recognizing, hey, we're studying society, but we're starting to study people who are basically engaging with sociological ideas that sociologists put into society. So what do we do with that? Right. There's this notion of like uh, and this comes back to, I guess, to the physics and the Einstein, maybe of like uh, uh, there's this naive notion that 
that that physicists or scientists are able to study things sort of objectively, stand back and whatever. But when you get to the quantum realm, right, you can't study certain things because of the observer effect and because of of certain things that the ways that the uh, measurement itself disrupts the object of study such that um you know you're 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 not a pure observer you're not just a fly on the wall anymore you're actually interacting with what you would want to to measure and observe so basically sociologists were realizing that they were having something of this effect uh themselves and um i think i use the example which i think i actually um uh, Jason Storm talks about in another of his books in some different contexts, but uh, the way that people use notions from uh, sociology to construct their identity today. I mean, there's a lot of conversations right now around, um, you know, uh, being non-binary uh, of, of uh, trans identity and, and the social construction of gender, et cetera, et cetera. These are um, in a very immediate way, influencing the way kids and young adults are forming their identities. But these are, ideas from sociology, right? So what's happening is uh, that that the enculturation process in which people enter society and learn things and form their identities is being informed by studies about culture. Um, and so that's a very fascinating thing. Now, once we start seeing that, like, I'm forming my identity just organically in my society via uh, concepts from sociology, that's the double hermeneutic that sociologists then become aware of. And they say, all right, well, let's study that because that's now a social phenomenon that we can be aware of. So you see, there's this recursive, reflexive, self, uh, self-reflecting self thing going on. Now, of course, once you start getting enough sociologists using the double hermeneutic to study what's going on in society using social uh, sociological constructs, then you can study the sociologists studying uh, the societies, et cetera. And that's what I'm calling the, the triple hermeneutic, which is um it's a a third layer of remove in which we are analyzing and thinking about and becoming aware of reflecting upon um these sorts of meta level shifts um and i think that that's important for any kind of study of meta modernism because uh like i use the example in the opening chapter about the barbie movie right here you've got this summer blockbuster fun for the whole family film uh and maybe 20 years ago, it would have just been this, you know, pulpy kind of vapid thing about Barbie and Ken and whatever. And it would have been this sort of postmodern, you know, just shallow, superficial uh, thing. But instead, you get this like um, very, uh, let, let's say it's uh, full of reflections upon the nature of patriarchy and gender and Barbie and consumerism and fascism and these, and these things. Um, and, and this is, this is this huge blockbuster movie. So that suggests that we're in this point in culture and we see it in many other instances where uh, if you want to talk about popular culture, I mean, the Barbie movie, you have to talk about postmodern social identity critiques and social constructivism and gender identity and the patriarchy and et cetera, et cetera, uh, critical theory. These are now so interwoven in the discourse of society uh, that also people responding or reacting to it are, you know, blaming those postmodernists, right? So it's so enmeshed in our society that, um, that the double hermeneutic is sort of, uh, is now sort of a given you could say. And if we're going to get, uh, reflecting even higher uh then we need to be aware of how that's all playing out so i i just call that the triple hermeneutic and that's the sort of level of analysis we need
All right. So if your cultural commentary ain't talking about the conversation about the conversation about culture, then you ain't with it. Yeah, I mean, it's and it's and it's it's interesting, too, because like um, one, this connects most immediately to your last question, like is like, isn't there a certain point at which this becomes absurd and things break down or, or what have you? Um, so I just want to put that out there. Uh, you know, and then two, it's like, well, also not necessarily, then you get that return to like, okay, no, we're just going to make a movie about penguins. You know, the, uh, there's actually, pretense there's a pretense of innocence. Yes. The pretense of innocence, the, the, the top gun movie that came out. I don't know if there was this interesting little back and forth, um, Damien Walter, uh, who uses metamodernism and his critiques and, and reflections on, on the film that particularly, you know like Marvel and, and, and sci-fi and whatnot. He, um, he critiqued this presentation uh, that someone else had done trying to talk about what they thought metamodernism was. And they used the Top Gun movie, I think to represent modernism. And he was like, no, 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 no Top Gun. This is, I'm sorry. This is Maverick, uh, the sequel. I should have specified that. Uh, so Top Gun Maverick is actually very aware of what it is. It's like, it's this nostalgic piece that presents this old, you know, the good old hero who does the thing. And it kind of plays by this, this old kind of rule book, but it's not doing it necessarily in like a really uh, naive, uh, you know, narrow minded, like basically it is it. The argument is that there's a, a reflection on itself doing this, that there's a level of awareness that this is going on, but it, but embracing it and just like sometimes you just need a good old hero movie. Sometimes you don't want to keep seeing your heroes deconstructed and all the all the superhero movies are about how the heroes are actually the villains and we don't know what's good. And, you know, sometimes you just want a good hero movie. And um, when you're aware that sometimes you just want a good hero movie, that's different from, well, there really should only just be hero movies, you know, all this postmodern nonsense. Make, you know, so you can see that you, you've, you've returned to something a bit more, uh, I don't know, primitive or, or simplistic but you're aware that you're doing it so uh so that also comes from maybe this house of cards that gets built up built up in this uh over reflexive iterative process uh yeah yeah i never saw the original top gun but i did enjoy maverick um however i think there's a lot of room um and it's integral theory points to this a little bit to for a future teasing apart of the post postmodern from the postmodern enabling of a resuscitated modernism or traditionalism. And I think it has something to do with where the postmodernism is situated. So you can say, well, we're sick of all these postmodern movies, but we're talking about the content of the film. We pull back and go, a completely postmodern corporate environment has decided to sell us some modernism or traditionalism. That doesn't mean it's evaded the postmodern context. Mm -hmm. It just means mm -hmm. we're locating that context differently. But there's one thing I wanted to touch on here. How did that go? Okay, so there's this idea, I think originally championed by Stanislav Grof and his wife, of the difference between breakdown and breakthrough, which is a kind of a higher-order transformationalist concern. And we could look at specific expressions of cultural codes in particular historical and technological niches, and we could ask whether we're seeing in that expression a lot of or not very much of the supportive conditions necessary to make breakthroughs more likely than breakdowns. And that would arguably be one meta-modern way to evaluate the health or unhealth of another cultural code. But healthy and unhealthy in culture codes is tricky, and the idea of one code judging another code can be highly agitating for people 
what do you think is the validity of metamodernism specifying functional versus dysfunctional examples of other cultural codes? Hmm. Um, I would say as sort of like a meta point up front that um, I do notice a difference in, so the integral discourse, by the way, I'm throwing out this word discourse, 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 but you know, whatever, it's inevitable. The integral discourse and the metamodern discourse are both um, talking about forms of post-postmodernism. There's a lot of overlap. There's also differences, et cetera. Um, and there's very meaningful confluence in, in some areas. And so, you know, that is what it is. I, yeah. I do notice, though, a meaningful difference in the metamodern discourse as being a bit less apt to go there, <laughs> you know, to to use framings of, oh, well, but this metamodern frame looks at this frame and, and it does this and that. And I think that's a, a, in large part owing to the fact that it has these other strands, you know, that kind of... Uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna meaningfully tie back to like the cultural studies, um, you know, using usage of the term post uh, metamodernism, it's going to be difficult if like most of what you're talking about is developmental advances and what can be more functional. And then like the cultural studies people are going to be like, is is Lego movies a metamodern or is it not? You know what I mean? So I think that um, what I would say to that is that I can answer that question, but I also don't want to give the impression that like you know. Uh, this approach uh, necessarily even even is geared towards asking those kinds of questions, let alone answering them. Uh, but it does in certain uh, configurations if we're using, you know, a specifically kind of developmental lens on the recursive reflection, et cetera. So that's just sort of a just want to throw that out. It, at, at minimum, shouldn't it be able to say what kinds of postmodernism are more likely to become metamodern? or not that's a that's a really good point uh yeah i think so um trying to think of yeah um i think i think the difference there is just the the use of terms like better or worse or functional dysfunctional right because uh you know the 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 cultural studies folks will look at you know a move from postmodernism to modernism there's no normative or axiological element there at all it's just you know oh you used to like grunge music and nirvana and now you like you know uh punch brothers and and i don't know whatever so i just want to throw that out there uh just as a meaningful distinction um but then to actually answer the question which is something you're asking how would uh like a meta modern lens look at other lenses and be able to adjudicate uh like dysfunction or 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 functional uh kind of quality to them i guess i would say again this kind of keeps going back to the eternal recursive reflection thing which is that um if you're doing reflection if you're taking something as an object of reflection and and it is in this case let's say kind of a typically modern or postmodern thing um that can be done to different ends. It can be done in different ways. Um, and so I think then the question is sort of, um, you know, if we're taking postmodern ideas as our object of awareness, and then we're, we're, we're thinking that we're kind of going past them in some way, I guess I would say that there's a danger. Hmm. I, I'm going to answer this question in this way, but there's other ways to answer it. There's a danger in then taking this new kind of uh, universal metric or or whatever we want to call this thing, um, and then 
having it uh, creep into this new totalizing function again, let's say. So, and and this is part of way back we were talking about meta modern politics and the p- potentials of a meta modern right and that sort of a thing. Um, there was briefly like a little little pocket of of, of folks on the alt right trying to use meta modernism to talk about what they were talking about, but it actually wasn't meta modern at all. It was this kind of weird like fascist kind of uh, you know neo trad kind of thing, and they wanted to bring back the Byzantine Empire or something. And so I think that what you're going to find is a kind of pre trans thing go on. Right, which is that? Oh, metamodernism. This allows us to get past relativism. This allows us to, uh, you know, do this and that. Uh, and what you're often going to find is then people just kind of using metamodernism to, to kind of justify, you know, maybe very modern or even pre-modern sensibilities under the veneer of ah, but we've transcended postmodernism. I'm not sure if that really gets at the, the essence of your question. Yeah, I though, think so. we're dealing with a, with like a leading edge of the metamodern discussion at the moment, uh-huh. right? Because there is a need to get more clear about the tools necessary to distinguish certain kinds of modern and pre-modern conjunctions from what's actually post-postmodern. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's also going to be s- some uh, necessity to figure out the appropriate languaging that stabilizes the ability to say on the one hand, um, Going postmodern on postmodernism revives normativity, but we're not necessarily being totalistic in our application of that normativity. But since we discovered it, we should be able to normatively use it to evaluate other things. Otherwise, hmm. aren't we just being postmodern about this? But I yes. think that's a, a, a yet to be clarified frontier in this discourse. Well, and I, I think you're right. And I will say, despite all my hedging at the outset of trying to answer this question, I do myself lean very... Uh, I. I make a stand on this point. I do think that we need to, that something like normativity returns in a metamodern register. Um, And if this is a lot of the reason for these fractures and fragmentations in the scene, the fault lines uh, is because arguably, I think a a lot of metamodern theorizing is still happening uh, from a more postmodern sensibility or cultural logic. Um, In fact, I, I, when I did an interview with Tim Vermeulen, I asked him about this a little bit and he, he more or less said that or conceded it to some degree of, of that, you know, he might have himself kind of more, what's the word sort of um, uh, a, a regard for um, the word specific word is eluding me, but um, a more pr- uh, proclivity for uh, kind of uh, postmodern sensibility. And so that is, influencing when these other metamodern theorizations come up that he's like, you know, or at least the cultural studies folks are like, ah, we don't want to go there. We don't want to do that. And this becomes this interesting thing where like Hansi Freinach's work arguably is not just talking about metamodernism. It's trying to do metamodern philosophy in a metamodern register. So it's actually using uh, sincere irony and using the, 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 the devices and the strategies to actually present these ideas. So I do think that a big reason why the whole developmental framing is so anathema to some metamodern theorists is precisely because of this issue of normativity. I think that the academy is still obviously thoroughly postmodern. Um, and so if you're trying to do academic work on the topic of metamodernism, you don't want to touch normativity. 
And, you know, with the exception of uh, Storm's work, who I think is being very, um, really interesting in, in navigating the academic context, but also doing an incredible job philosophically at sort of bringing normativity back in uh, and, and, and kind of showing us that, you know, postmodernism still has its values. They've just been forced underground. So anyway, long story short, um, yeah, I think I would say that uh, for myself, I think that one of the hallmarks of, of a real metamodern approach to things is this return of normativity in a qualified sense, because that's how you get the sense of orientation. You don't get lost in the toggling of perspectives. You can see that metric. You can kind of find where you are in the whole stack of perspectives in the multiverse. Um, and it's also this return of meaning and purpose that we see happening in the discourse, uh, which is, again, an almost universal notion across these different theorists is like this return of meaning, grand narratives and whatnot. And um, you just can't really have those things if you don't have value, if you don't have normativity. So I would say that the normative aspect is really crucial. And I do think it is an important adjudicating aspect for determining for determining what theories really are metamodern. Right. So. Um, you know, I, other people are engaged with the value question um, and they see it as, you know, I think more and more people are like, hey, if we don't have a field of value, if we can't talk about better and worse and all this, then we're really screwed and stuck. And how do we do collective action, et cetera? So people are are aware of this and they're doing their uh, their best to formulate ideas. But I've seen ideas coming out of the quote unquote metamodern scene that I would say aren't metamodern at all because they don't take into account a normativity that actually takes seriously the postmodern critique of the absolutes uh, uh, versions of, of normativity and value. So uh, then it becomes really important to be able to adjudicate, right? And so if someone's like, hey, actually uh, there is fundamental value or there is absolute value or absolute meaning to things, then I get my hackles up and I'm like, okay, you might say that, but like, don't try to presume the pretense of like, oh, this is a new novel metamodern, you know, perspective. This is just a reiterated pre-modern conclusion that isn't really fundamentally grappling with the the modern, the postmodern critiques. Um, yeah. Yeah. The phrase I'm hearing that I think might lead to future clarity on this subject is uh, in a metamodern register, I think. Hmm. Doing different kinds of metamodernism in or not in a metamodern register might open up a, a field of analysis that makes a lot of this stuff more clear. Um, I have a note here that says negation is the means of production. Does that mean anything or is that just an incoherent sequence of pointless mouth noises? Um, mostly the latter. I think we need to steal back the means of production and I think negation is the way to do it. Um, no. Okay. Uh, now, on, no, on the subject of negation. Um what does Joseph Ananda Storm, great name, by the way, think that his work is doing that goes beyond previous theorists? What's the nub of what he thinks he's contributing? Hmm. Well, I won't speak for him, but my impression of what he thinks he's doing is uh, uh, is taking stock first of what we really mean by postmodernism, which I think is important. I think his framing is a little too narrow. And I talk about that in the last chapter, but I think it's, he's very, um, he's very meticulous. He's very, he's a, he's a very clear thinker and he's very uh, specific about what he's talking about. So for him, postmodernism represents a, uh, a paradigm in the Academy, uh, a certain set of uh, interpretive strategies, um, especially in the humanities and the social sciences that's just been hegemonic for the past, you know, 40 years. 
Um, and I think that's important because otherwise, if you get people talking about postmodernism, I mean, you know, that can go anywhere, you know. Uh, so uh, I think that there's some clarity about that, which is at least a good starting point. Uh, and I want to expand, uh, but I think that's important. So then when you take that as like, we'll just start there. I think what he's doing that's particularly novel is taking those ideas very seriously. And he also comes from a background in which he helped advance some of these theories. And then doing this Hegelian negation of the negation, which is carrying through these ideas, taking them so seriously that you actually go further with them in a way that uh, by the time you're sort of done completing the move, you found yourself not in a place of skepticism or nihilism or anti-realism, but you've actually you've ac actually be able to assert real content. You know, you're no longer under the sign of the negation, as he says. You're you're in a, a positive register, which, by the way, I think is also a, a, an almost universal aspect of all the articulations of metamodernism. Uh, I, I just you can't escape this notion that the postmodern is somehow this antithesis. It's this negative movement. It's the negation of modern notions and meta narratives. Um, I talked a little bit about this all the way back in my after postmodernism series that like most formulations of the postmodern are the loss of something, you know, like uh, Jameson has, you know, the loss of hermeneutic depth and Harvey has the, the loss of, uh, what is he talking about? The the loss of um well or Leotard has the loss of the the grand narrative, et cetera, et cetera. So when you get into this metamodern register, there's this sense of this like you're somehow in an affirmational stance again that you can see meaning, you can see story, you can see grand narratives, you can see uh, uh you can see progress, you can see political uh, improvement, et cetera. There's something of a of a switch from a negative to a positive there. So anyway. Uh, Storm's work is is doing that. I think he would say he's doing that dialectically. Uh, so he's taking things like anti-realism. And if you probe deep enough into the supposed claims of the anti-realists, you can actually see that, well, that there's something kind of positive on the other side of that. So for example, what we were talking about earlier, right? You have the simplistic notion of an absolute, and then you deconstruct it, you break it down, you're in this negation. But then on the other side of that, you get this reconstructive effort where you have, in this case, let's say, a, pr a process way of looking at phenomena, right? So like if if I say, um, you know, right, this is a kind of a classic example, but like, uh, you know, what is this? Well, you'd say, well, that's a cup. And I'd say, oh, okay, well, well what is it now if I do this, you know? And if it, now it's like some kind of a augmenting, you know, hearing aid. And if I put it on my head, it'll be a hat, right? And this is Wittgensteinian thing. It's like, well definitions will not suffice if I'm trying to explain what this thing is. So you do this move long enough and you deconstruct the cup and then it's like, oh, okay, well, I guess nothing is anything and anything's nothing and we can't know anything for sure and everything's con contextual and, and whatever, right? And that's the postmodern moment. That's the situation of the postmodern of like, you, you deal with that, but then you can come around and be like, all right, well, yes. So this isn't a cup in the way that we thought it was a cup because of all those things that you just said, but we can track meaningful properties and, and, and clusters that, um, you know, and then Verveke's work is a lot about this, right? What optimal grip can I get on this cup? Why do I approach it in a certain way? How come when I pick it up, I don't pick it up over here? Why do I, you know, it's so that like what Verveke's doing is a very metamodern philosophical program because he's trying to reclaim some sense of meaning after you deconstruct what you thought a, a, a thing was. 
So I would say that most of uh, Jason's work is about doing those kinds of moves, right? So you have deconstruction showing up in postmodernism where you take the categories of the academy and you say, well, what actually is religion? Well, it's a construct that was invented by European Protestants, you know, during the context of uh, colonialism. And so, you know, if you look back in history, people didn't have words for religion. So it's a modern idea. So it's an imposition of a new idea on the old. You know. So then you just deconstruct it. And then you're left in the postmodern moment of like, oh, okay. So I guess uh, the whole field of religion is a meaningless idea. And what do we do about that? But then you come along, and you're like, okay, t given all that, now we can talk about religion actually as like, one, something we can reflect on as a category, as a concept in its own evolution. And so then we can actually use that to kind of talk about it. So there's this recursive reflective thing. It's not just what is the concept. It is where does the concept come from? What's the history of the concept and all this stuff? And then it's also, well, what, what can we actually use this concept for in a meaningful way? Uh, and how do we approach it in a way that's still actually constructive for scholarship and for knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. So by the end of these sorts of moves, you can meaningfully use certain terms again, not in a naive simplistic sense, but in a reconstructed, complexified sense that's more, more, more sensitive to these kinds of issues and isn't sort of given to this, you know, again, misplaced concreteness and this uh, reification of these ideas as kind of simple givens. Um, so that's mostly what Storm's work is doing, is taking a number of ideas from the postmodern paradigm, carrying them through, and then showing them how, showing how all of these deconstructions are necessary in order to obliterate our simpler notions of what we thought we were dealing with, but we can actually get beyond just the negative move to something uh, productive on the other side. So negation is the means of production. What? Uh, attentive listeners will notice that I said uh, Joseph Ananda's storm instead of Jason Ananda Joseph's storm. And uh, I'm definitely sticking with that. But bear in mind that I also say Connecticut. Uh, <laughs> speaking of bearing things in mind, you're probably aware that I become unthinkingly enraged when I hear unnecessary new terminology. And keeping that in mind, explain to me the difference between realism and meta-realism. Uh, realism is... Well, I guess you could say, right, all right, there's this kind of kind of classic uh, thing that people do when they're presented for the first time with, say, the notions of Barclay's idealism or whatnot. You know, there's a story that goes back to Sam Johnson where, you know, uh, Boswell asks him, well, how do you refute, you know, Barclay's idealism? And he says, I refute it thus. And he kicks a rock. And somehow this is supposed to refute the idea that, you know, uh, that, that things are all in our heads or something. Um, and so when you're presented with some form of anti-realism, Usually that's in response to a particular realist frame that, again, is a rather kind of simplistic, uh, uh, naive presumption of the reality of a given thing. So that's sort of anti-realism. Now, meta-realism uh, is specifically an idea that he offers that says, okay, when we use the word real, what we're doing actually is using a contrastive term. Okay, so like the idea real is, is like the word early, you know. Like, is anything objectively early? Well, no, it's context dependent, right? So it's it's like, if yeah, you see, I could go on. But so real is a word like that. So we can't just say this thing isn't real and, and, and presume that we've conveyed the full meaning of something. We're actually suggesting what it's real in relation to or not real in relation to. So real is a, is a relative contrastive term. And then once you're clear about that, you just have to be specific about what you're saying something is real in relation to. Now, the postmodernist 
did the anti-realist thing, but they didn't go that next step of saying, okay, we can actually see that there's like, this is a relative term and we can actually be clear when we specify what something is not real in relation to. Uh, and so that's what meta-realism allows you to do is to see that real is 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 actually not this absolute term. It's a relative one. It's, it's context dependent. And uh, we can then be a lot clearer. And actually, it's, it's actually almost shocking that no one, as far as I know, said this earlier, but it can clarify a lot of problems uh, that currently exist. Uh, so for example, right, I mean, this is one you can kind of intuitively get, you know, people will be like, do we live in the real world? You know, like there's this notion of like, ah, well, what's the real world? Is it a simulation? Is it this and that? Um, but if you like kind of probe this, right, it's like, what does that even mean? The real, like, is the is the universe real? You know, in relation to what? Is there another universe? Like, if we had another universe and something could say that, you know what I mean? Like, it, because then you see that it's actually a contrastive term. Uh, but when you hide that or you just aren't aware of it, then you can say all sorts of crazy things and people believe you. Like, you know, this cup isn't real because I showed you it's it's a hat it's all these other things you know it's not a cup it's 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 not real the cup isn't real you know and or whatever right so then it's like well is it a real well, you get what i'm saying so you can you can frame these things in such a way where a lot of the postmodern uh skepticism about things of like what we can know and what's real it just kind of gets obliterated once we're very clear about what we're actually meaning by real so meta realism is a gesture towards getting clear about that couple more questions, then we're done. Uh, I think most folks are probably just like me, grew up rural and always thought that uh, Zetetic meant of or pertaining to the cult of Zetetis, ancient Persian god of coitus interruptus, if I'm not mistaken. But just before I came on the air, my 15-year-old stepdaughter, who uses this term a lot, told me I'm completely wrong. Help me out. What is hashtag Zetetic thinking? Zeteticism or Zetetic thought is, uh, yeah, it's it's... It's a neologism from Storm's work uh, where he's talking about knowledge and what we can know in epistemology. The etymology comes from the Greek word zetain, which means to seek or to to inquire about, to look into, to search. Um, and it's basically just, uh, as I read Storm's work, he's talking about um, in response to the kind of radical skepticism of postmodernism, uh, we can embrace what he calls a zetetic approach or like an inquiring searching inquiry approach to knowledge, which is a kind of humble epistemology. It's um, not making bold claims of absolute, you know, uh, reality, which is one of the ironies he points out about postmodern skepticism, which is a postmodern, it's a very radical postmodern skeptic might say, well, we can't know anything, you know, because, uh, because of and then they'd list another a number of reasons through deconstructive and you know whatever strategies to to uh, problematize um our thought but if you think about that idea of we can't know anything it's actually a very dogmatic assertion so um again this is a great example of this sort of recursive iterative process by which things evolve and by uh the dialectic of the negation of the negation so if you have simplistic presumption here and then you get the negation of it uh, as sort of like a no, that can't be right at all. Well, yeah, you can actually see that these are actually related to the degree that they're both dogmatic uh, in the way that they're asserting. So then you can 
go the next move and you can actually reaffirm something uh, by negating what you just said, which is actually, well, so what you do is you doubt doubt or you are skeptical about skepticism. So uh, by by reapplying the same thing you just did here in an iterative way, you actually negate it, but you don't just go back to what you were doing here. So this is this dialectical spiral and all that. So zeteticism is the skepticism of skepticism, uh, the uh, the open acknowledgement that we might actually know something, uh, and uh, it's a different approach to uh, well, you know, our our, our our notions of knowledge in a meta modern register. Regular listeners, I think, will be astonished and also proud of me for not having mentioned Nietzsche at all in this discussion. Um. Okay, we both know people who argue strongly for an oscillation model of metamodernism and who argue against it. <laughs> um, what format do you think an oscillation model would have to take in order to satisfy the critiques of the anti-oscillationists like Jermaine Marvel? So I don't know Jermaine Marvel's uh, view on, on the oscillation issue. I would say, and I basically try to do this in the book, is... Uh, that there's a way of understanding the oscillation thing in terms of this process that I'm describing, this sort of dialectical recursive uh, reflection thing. I think you can also emphasize uh, a couple of points. One is that the oscillation framework. Okay. Okay. So oscillation, when you first hear oscillation, you hear that, you know, there's this pendulum idea of things oscillate back and forth, right? Now, even in their 2010 essay, uh, Vermeulen and von Doniker say, well, that's too simplistic. Don't think of oscillation that way. It's actually oscillation between one, two, five, ten innumerable poles. All right. So we're already in this domain of, well, we're not doing this back and forth oscillation thing. We're actually like doing this kind of whatever thing. Now they clarify this even more in their 2017 book, and they actually call it a, uh, uh, oscillation or then they say which is to say a dialectical movement that negates what had been and yet you know moves beyond it and so even on their own terms it sounds very much like all these other forms of dialectical synthesis right now now this is interesting though and and maybe very nuanced and hopefully this is helpful but i think what they're getting at is that what they're trying to do is avoid the simplistic reading of hegel which is like capital S synthesis, right? It's like, oh, and again, by the way, Hegel never did the thesis antithesis synthesis thing, but let's just say, okay, so, but in, in readings of Hegel and how people talk about them, there's this, you know, these three moves, there's the thesis, the antithesis, and then the synthesis where they come together. So one of the ways that you can oversimplistically read that movement is that, oh, now they've come together. Now we've got the absolute, you know, now we've got this stable third balanced equilibrium thing and we can keep doing this and it'll all be. And I think that they were trying very hard to avoid the notion that metamodernism is some stable equilibrium or some like balanced thing that sort of like triumphantly sort of synthesizes postmodernism and modernism. Uh, and I think that's good to emphasize because like, no, it doesn't. It's like moving back and forth between them. And on top of that, they also note that these innumerable other poles are these residual cultural logics, essentially, that they're that they're these other realist and pre-modern, pre-postmodern sorts of things that the metamodernist is moving back and forth between. So what you get there in all of this, I think, is basically what most of the other people are already saying by criticizing the oscillation model, which is that there's 
there is an integration of other cultural codes into the into the metamodern. So that's how I read the metamodern thing. Um, it's also Im important to emphasize, I think, that like this is actually one of the points where the early cultural studies folks are the outlier from all these other metamodern theories. Uh, and even in their own work, they seem to kind of uh, hedge this notion of oscillation a lot. The other authors in the anthology that they publish explicitly critique it, uh, including Eshelman. Um, you know, Denver is also still very much in the cultural studies camp. And he, you know, says, well, that's not quite right. There's a braiding and these are those other things. So even in the st cultural studies thing, it's like this oscillation is a very problematic idea. Whereas if you just work with something more like a dialectical synthesis, it's a lot clearer. Uh, but then again, you want to avoid the oversimplification of, you know, that synthesis as being some kind of triumphant mod modernist sort of Hegelian ultimate. So I emphasize you know, eternal recursion, this recursive move. And I use the word instead of oscillation, I use toggling because I mean, almost by definition, you know, oscillation is a back and forth between two poles. So if you want to say, yeah, but it's more than two poles, you've already like, why use the word oscillation? So I use the word toggling to talk about moving in and out of different kinds of perspectives and cultural logics. Um, so again, that's one thing I hope that this book can hope to, that, you know, can, can do is bring these ideas together, show, what is an outlier, what seems to be more like a consensus and then try to provide some new language that we can use. Uh, so I don't know if it works, maybe people speak more about toggling than oscillation, but, um, but, but I will mention, cause I did want to say this too, new terms, you know, you got to come up with terms They're they're It's actually really funny. I found that um, if you have some new terms gives you ways uh, to talk about your work. And then people say, hey, this is this new thing, right? You just talked about zeteticism and uh, anti-realism from Storm's book, right? Now, if you don't coin some terms, people are kind of like, what is your book about? So there's a kind of meta-aware thing you've got to do when writing a book like this to uh, to to come up with some fun terms. And I'll, one I'll throw out here as we're closing is eternal recursion, uh, because I would hate for your uh, re repeat listeners not to get some Nietzsche. But eternal recursion is sort of a play on Nietzsche's idea of uh, eternal recurrence, which is uh, an idea in his philosophy of this radically imminent notion of uh, of thinking about amor fati, the love of fate and all this stuff. And the idea that you could, uh, well, it doesn't matter because I'm just drawing on the sound of it. We don't have to talk about Nietzsche's idea. But recursion is the process that I'm describing uh, here as the means by which these cultural evolutions occur. Uh, recursion is when you take a thing and then you repeat it and sort of add it to itself. It's sort of self, it's reflexive. It's uh, it repeats on itself. It takes itself as its own sort of thing. Um, and so uh, if there's a degree to which this is like a, a worldview element, that there's a notion here of what I'm calling eternal recursion, which is why this process is infinite, because you can always keep adding things on. You can always keep reflecting on the reflection, on the reflection, on the reflection, on the reflection, on the reflection until you choose to stop. And, um, I think that, uh, yeah, if we think about that in terms of a metamodern context, uh, that gives us a helpful way to integrate notions of oscillation, dialectics, development, and see the meta pattern that they're all really basically about, which is uh, eternal recursion and transcendence through iterative self-reflection. I'm curious about whether a an inquiry into left and right in metamodern discourse would reveal something like a distinction of preference for neologisms to expand the repertoire of concepts versus 
the tendency to reapply new insights to inherited terminology, which might be mm. a more conservative way to approach the same thing. But just before we go, I, I have a, I'm curious about one specific toggle. There's some discussion in this book about the second naivete and the option that emerges in the ultra recursive metamodern mind to opt out of recursion and embrace an obviousness of experience that doesn't return to pre-recursive cognition. Now, is that just an option? Is it a luxury item that one may or may not have installed in the metamodern sedan? Or is there something about the circulation or oscillation or braiding or dialectic between multi-layered reflexivity and the second naivete that is itself essential to the production of the patterns that you're pointing to as being metamodern? Hmm. One immediate thought is that it's not optional in the sense of, uh, you know, you you mentioned attentional working memory capacity or something to that effect earlier, and um, there, there's there's we can't go through the world all the time at this ultra high level of reflectively, you know, re reflecting on everything. Um, we can't, and also we shouldn't because it's like it's it's maladaptive. Um, so I guess I would say that it is necessary to a degree for appreciating this metamodern move, um, but it is a toggling thing. It's it's not that the metamodern itself represents uh, where reflection stops. It's it, ref it the metamodern reflects the capacity to be aware that reflection can stop, uh, and maybe that it should stop. Um, so. This has just been an interesting way for me to integrate some wisdom that I've picked up over the years as a consummate over reflector um, is that, uh, yeah, sometimes uh, the recursive act uh, of continually reflecting is um, not helpful. And so um, I think that it's part and parcel of the contextual awareness of, of the metamodern perspective. I think that that's really what's really crucial is like, um, the metamodern perspective, I think, is always code switching, is always attentive to the dynamics, the relational contextual dynamics of a given situation um, or tries to be. I mean, I try to be, but fail miserably. I go into interviews like this and I think I'm going to be really clear and succinct. I'm not going to use jargon or many big words. And I just so anyway, capacity versus intention. But um, so. Yeah, I think that there's a an intention to be uh, always contextually aware and sensitive, and then to toggle accordingly. Um, and I think that the meta modern is uh, what provides the awareness of okay, now I can just be still, or now I don't need to. I can I can turn that off. I can turn the spigot off. Um, and there's something very liberating about that. Uh, and at the same time. It's always an option to turn the spigot back on, which I think is important because, and I see this a lot, uh, moderating metamodern communities, I, again, intention versus capacity, it's hard to do this, but like, I start to see that sincerity get a little too sincere sometimes, and I want to kind of turn on some of that irony spigot, you know, and then I see people coming in, and they're just maybe sometimes being too skeptical, and they all just want to tear things down. I'm like, hey, come on, let's just turn on a little bit more, you know, uh, a little less reflection, maybe. Um so it's this sort of balancing act that's sort of dynamically aware of these different uh, forces and tensions. And um, I think that that's probably the best way of thinking about it. Well, we've been pretty relentless in our recursive reflection on metamodernism today. And let's Indeed. give ourselves and everyone else the opportunity to 
stop. And if you've followed us this way, please have a cigar, get a massage, do something. Uh, this has been fantastic, Brennan. Uh, thanks very much. And uh, appreciate all the work that you're putting into trying to make a, uh, a more coherent field out of all these um, overlapping metamodernisms. Thank you very much. Thanks for this opportunity. Really enjoyed it. As always, you're the best interlocutor uh, and the best, uh, I was going to say inquisitor, but uh, I meant to say interviewer uh, with some very wonderful and incisive questions as always. So thank you, Layman. Much appreciated.